It is the end of the beginning. Can you believe it? Acts chapter 28. This is the last episode of season three. I can't believe it. I am going to miss this season. Today we discuss the everlasting impact of total commitment to preaching the gospel. And we will even discuss a modern example of the great rewards that are yours when you are committed to making Jesus known to the nations. Someone you might know is going to be honored very soon. The gospel is the most important message in the world. The book of Acts proves that this is the deep end. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Tuesday night, 7 p.m., your favorite night of the week. I know it's your favorite night of the week. Let me know in the comments below. This is your favorite night of the week, other than date night, of course, date night with your significant other. But The Deep End, Tuesday nights, we're so glad that you're here. YouTube.com slash The Deep End. YouTube.com slash The Deep End. Please like and subscribe. Like, hit the thumbs up, and hit the red subscribe button, and please the notification bell as well. Why? Because then you get notified on your smartphone device that we are live every time we post new episodes. Hello, FM 99.5 in Rhode Island. Hello, Spotify. Hello, WEZE Radio in Boston. My name is Tim Hatch. I'm the host of The Deep End Show. And yes, it is the final episode of season three. We have been doing this for three years. It has been a joy of mine to present God's word to you uh, where you are at. You know, you might not tune in on Tuesday nights. You might not watch us on YouTube. Maybe just listen to us on the podcast app. That's fine too. However you receive this content or on the radio, however you receive this content, we're just so glad that you're taking time to listen. I pray and trust that this is a blessing in your life. Hey, do me a favor. On the podcast app on your favorite, uh, on your phone, on your device, that wherever you listen to it on, please leave us a review or on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash the deep end TV. Please leave us a review on your podcast app though, because that helps spread the word about this program and do that now. Let us know how much you appreciate this content. Even if you don't appreciate it, let us know how much you appreciate it. <laughs> okay. With that in mind, let's get into deep end news. From the domain of some good news. I want to say this is some great news. This is some great news. So we all know the news of the statues are coming down, right? You've been watching the news. You've been seeing them tear down the statues of uh, segregationists and uh, slave uh, owners and all those kind of people from the deep south. Now, I was raised in the north. I was raised in New England. I've been in New England my whole life. I've been in the northeast my whole life. And to be honest with you, I never understood why the South ha had these statues to slave owners and to men who fought to try to enshrine slavery into this country in the 1800s. I, I, I never understood that as a northerner. And so God bless them for tearing some of those statues down, most of those statues down. I think if they did hold slaves and they were, you know, uh, for slavery, they shouldn't be honored. Absolutely. I think we get a little bit nuts when we start tearing down George Washington and Thomas Jefferson statues because although they didn't live up to their ideals, they did point the way to the ideals that we enjoy today as Americans, amen? Like, <laughs> we can thank them for their contribution to what we have today, even though they may not have lived up to the fullest extent of it. But anyway, here's some really great news. As those statues are coming down, there is a statue going up that I'm really thrilled about. Guess what? In the U.S. Capitol, there is a statutary hall, statutary hall, and it has two statues from each state in the union that are chosen by the state representatives uh, to be representative of the United States of America. Well, guess what? North Carolina is replacing one of its statues, 
And the statue that they are replacing it with is a statue of Billy Graham. <laughs> Isn't that cool? The U.S. Capitol is going to install a Billy Graham statue in 2021 in statu Statutary Hall. I don't know if that's how you say statutary, but that's what I'm going to say it is. So again, there's 100 statues, two from each state, of prominent people from each state to kind of just, you know, unite us all together around the common good. Well, Graham, a North Carolina native, this is in Christianity Today, North Carolina native, who was born on a dairy farm in Charlotte, will take the place of Charles uh, Icock, uh, a former governor of North Carolina. Uh, Graham, Franklin Graham said he is honored by the statue uh, going up in honor of his father, although his father never would have wanted the honor himself. He always wanted people to give God the glory and not himself. Isn't that true? We all know that about Billy Graham. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, in partnership with the state, is raising money for the statue and its installation. It's going to cost $650,000. It's a lot of money for a statue. I think I could do it for half that if you're willing to pay me. <laughs> Just kidding. No state funds will be used. But I think that's pretty cool. It's not really like just such a testimony to the impact of someone named Billy Graham who had an incredible impact on my life. I used to watch him as a young boy with my father in our living room, and he used to inspire me uh, about the power of the gospel. And all you have to do is watch about three seconds of any one of his messages to know that Billy Graham was 110% committed to preaching one message, and that is only in the name of Jesus Christ can you have your sins forgiven and your ticket stamped to heaven. So God bless the American capital, the U.S. capital for doing this, the state of North Carolina. Good move. Out with the old, in with the new. And it's really kind of tied to what we're talking about today with the Apostle Paul and his commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts. I mean, that's what the book of Acts has reminded us about, right? The gospel doesn't stop. And those who are for the gospel, guess what? Have God's hand of protection upon their lives. But some more deep end news, and this is actually internal deep end news, and I'm kind of really excited about this. Um, what are we going to do with season four? So last year we did a vote. We actually submitted it to you and we got like seven votes. <laughs> so we didn't leave that up to you this time. We, I made an executive decision as to what's going to be the content for season four of The Deep End. So 2020 to 2021, coming back in September, Deep End season four, a new season. What are we going to do? We're not going to do one book of the Bible. Mm -mm. We're going to do five books of the Bible. <laughs> and the reason why is because we're not going to do just the books of the Bible, these five books. We're going to talk about somebody who is, uh, his story is told through these five books. And it's going to be exciting. And we're going to the Old Testament. So who, what's it all about next, next season, season four of the Deep End? Watch this. For three years, The Deep End has taken you deeper into the scriptures of the New Testament on a weekly basis for your personal growth in Christ. We started with 1 Corinthians, then Revelation, then we explored the explosive growth of the New Testament church in the book of Acts. But this time, we're going old school. In season four of The Deep End, we'll explore scriptures from the Old Testament. David is the Jewish Bible's most beloved hero. We are going to look at this mighty man's life and show you how incredibly he points you to the true hero of your soul, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't want to miss our fourth season of The Deep End as we explore the life of David. Ooh, that trailer just gives me chills. I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. So 
We're going to take our annual summer siesta here on the deep end. We will not be back until September. But please, please, please hang tight and tune in when we're back with season four of the deep end, the life of David. He is my favorite uh, Old Testament character, and we're going to talk about how his life points to Jesus Christ. You're not going to want to miss it. So let's uh, go um, and finish off season three. All right, here we go. We're going to get back to the book of Acts after this message. The Deep End with Tim Hatch is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you would like to partner with us to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv slash partner or on the cash app with the cash tag, the Deep End TV. Acts chapter 28, ladies and gentlemen. Acts chapter 28. I call this episode the end of the beginning. And I want to give you the subtitle of this episode. We do not just study Acts, we live it. We do not just study Acts, we live it. I remember when I was a young boy, and I was a little bit of a weird young boy, (laughs) um, I felt that God had called me into pastoral ministry at the age of 13. Now, that is very strange, and it makes for a very strange public high school experience, just letting you know. But anyway, um, I remember that one of the most important things that I felt I had to do was get to know the Bible. So uh, I was a lazy reader. I didn't like to read. I do like to read now, but you know what teenage boy does like to read? So what I got for Christmas one year was the Bible on tape. And this particular Bible on tape, on tape, for those of you who are under the age of 30, it was when this tape went from the left to the right and you put it in a cassette player and so on and so forth. <laughs> My media team is shaking their heads at me. Okay, anyway. Um, so I got the Bible on tape and I would play it right before I went to bed. And this particular Bible on tape was dramatized. So they had like sound effects and they had different voices for the characters. Really cool. Well, when I got to the book of Acts, it was really exciting. And especially, remember we talked about this last week with Acts chapter 27 with the sea voyage and the storm and all that stuff. It was really highly dramatized in that moment. And it was really exciting. And I remember listening to it at at, at night in my bed. Still to this day, I remember listening to this and thinking, wow, is Paul going to get to Rome? Is Paul going to get to Rome? And and then Acts chapter 28 comes along and he finally gets to Rome. And i got to be honest with you, the story ends with like a thud. It's just like a, and Paul gets to Rome, thud. And you never hear him appeal to Caesar. You never hear the trial. You never hear what happens to him about, you know, does he get set free or what? That's it. He he gets to Rome, Rome and that's pretty much it. And I remember listening to it thinking, well, surely the book of Romans is going to continue the story because after all, he's in Rome. But no, what is Romans? Romans is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome that was actually written somewhere around Acts chapter 20. So it doesn't actually become narrative at that point. It becomes letters and and writings and documents from church leaders to churches in in the first century. And Acts really ends the narrative of history for the Bible. It really does. It's the end of narrative history in the scriptures. It begins in Genesis chapter 1. God said, let there be light. And then it ends in Acts chapter 28. And then the rest of the Bible is letters, personal correspondences. And so you think to yourself, why does the Bible end like that? Why does the book of Acts end with a thud? Why doesn't it tell us more? Here's why. Because we don't just study Acts, we live it. You know what the end of the book of Acts is? It's still being written. (laughs) You and I are part of Acts chapter 29. That's what we are. We are Acts 29, and we are the age that is carrying on the work of the Apostle Paul, Peter, John, James, and the other disciples 
who testified to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And think about it. Your uh, faith family tree, your faith family lineage, okay? You have a biological lineage that you can trace back through all these uh, you know, programs today, but your faith family lineage, somebody told you about Jesus, but somebody told that person about Jesus, and somebody told that person about Jesus. And that goes all the way back. That goes all the way back 2,000 years to Paul the Apostle. And so if you think about it, no, it, it's not that it ends with a thud to say, it's, it's, that's it, it's boring, it's the end. No, it ends this way to say, you and I are part of that story. And so it's intended to remind us that the end of history is not in Acts chapter 28. The end of history is when Jesus Christ cracks the sky, comes back, and welcomes us home and inaugurates the eternal age of heavenly paradise. Amen. So with that in mind, let's get into Acts chapter 28, verse 7, where we left off last week. Verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named uh, Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put, us, they put on board whatever we needed. So Paul is on the island of Malta. If you remember, uh, the ship in a storm took him off course and he landed at this island, this kind of like remote island where there was this very remote village. And if you remember, he gathers the wood for the fire and a viper grabs onto his hand and he shakes it off into the fire. And we talked about that, shaking things off as you go through storms in life. But now he stays on this island for three months. And while he's there, and this is a very important point, while he's there, he ministers to the people around him. Paul desperately wants to get to Rome, and he has been hindered. He has been withheld from his ultimate goal and aim and destination in life. But it doesn't stop him from living a life of ministry toward others. Here's the point. You might not be where you want to be, but the question is this. The question is, can you serve where you are? You might not have the family you want, the kids you want, maybe even the spouse you want, maybe the job you want, Whatever it is, you might not have all the things that you imagine that your life would be. The question is not, when will that happen for you? The question is, can you be faithful where you are? Can you serve God, and by serving God, serve other people, okay? Because we tend to think that serving God is just praying and singing to him, but serving other people is the best way to serve God because people need him, they need Christ. And the question is not where you are. The question is, will you get where you want to be? The question is, can you serve now? where you are. Some people say, well, I can't serve God. I don't know enough about the Bible. That doesn't matter. Can you start serving now? I got to tell you, I know more about the Bible than I ever knew before, but I had to start preaching at some point, and I guarantee you that I did not hardly know anything when I started preaching. So you just got to start serving. You got to start putting your hand to the plow. You got you to start somewhere, and so many people are on the sidelines of Christianity because they never step out into that uncomfortable realm of the what could happen, of the unknown, of the I've never been here before. And what I've learned throughout the Bible, and we're going to learn this in the book of Acts. We're going to learn this in the book of Acts. What I've learned from my life and in the Bible, and especially in Acts chapter 28, is that God shows up big time when we step up to serve him in small ways. 
That's exactly what happens here. Paul just prays for this guy's father and he heals him. And then before you know it, word spreads and the people on the island are coming to Paul for healing of all their diseases. And you have to know that Paul is not going to sit there and just say, okay, healed, 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 healed. He's going to say, healed in the name of Jesus. And by the way, Jesus died for your sins and he's the pathway to God. Okay, so I love this about Paul. He never hesitated to serve right where he was. And if it wasn't too little for Paul the Apostle to serve here on this small little remote island, it's not, it's not too little for you to serve right where you are. Okay, moving on. Verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Now, I want you to notice that there's twin gods as a figurehead of this ship from Alexandria that Paul is going to sail from Malta to Rome. Uh, first off, the twin gods are Castor and Pollux. Uh, these gods were sons of Zeus. They were gods of nautical venturing, if you will. Why does uh, Luke bother to mention that these gods were figureheads on the, um, on the ship? Uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, and some people would just think, oh, he's just mentioning it because it was there. But I think it is, he's mentioning it because of how he puts it about the ship. It says, after three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island. It had wintered there, and this ship was guarded by the Greek gods, Pollux and Castor. Oh, interestingly enough, Castor and Pollux is the name of a dog food brand today. <laughs> Just remember that. We name our dogs after the Roman and Greek gods. We name our sons and daughters after the people of the Bible. Anyway, Paul's been on this island for all winter, but he had just been through a terrible storm, and if you remember, God had protected the life of Paul and the 276 souls that were on board that ship from a savage storm. And this ship, guarded by the twin gods Pollux and Castor, Roman gods, Greek gods, I'm sorry, Greek gods, had just stayed in port all winter. <laughs> you know what it tells us? It tells us this. False gods can protect you when life is safe, but only the God of heaven can protect you when life is unsafe. See, we can rely on the things that we think are our security when everything is going fine. But someday, at some point, the proverbial crap is going to hit the fan. <laughs> and it is the God of heaven alone that can ultimately guard us and guide us through. Amen? This is why... Sometimes, and I say sometimes, but I do mean this, the best thing to happen to someone is disaster because it upends their confidence in all the other gods, the idols of their world that they are relying on for safety, protection, security, and affirmation, and it gets them to look up to heaven. Somebody that would never have listened to God, financial crisis comes into their life, and suddenly they show up at church. And sometimes God does bring disaster to awaken our eyes to our need for him. This is why in the parable of the prodigal son, it is not the loss of family or friends or money that shakes the boy's confidence and gets him to think about going back to the father. No, the scripture is very clear. There's a famine that comes into the land and then he loses money and then he loses friends and then he's feeding the pigs and then he wakes up. This is why I'm continually amazed by Christian parents who keep bailing their rebellious children out of the problems that their sin keeps finding them in. If you're a Christian parent and your son doesn't want to serve Jesus and he wants to go and live this certain lifestyle, stop bailing him out. Stop subsidizing. 
Stop paying for it. Stop trying to protect him from danger because I want him to know that I love him. He will, he will suck you dry. She will suck you dry. And they will never turn to God. Sometimes people need a famine, friend. Sometimes people need a famine so that they wake up and they realize that life with God is better. That life with Jesus is better. That the devil really doesn't have that much to offer in the way of permanent joy. Temporal joy, temporal pleasure, devil's all about that. Permanent, lifelong, everlasting, satisfying pleasure, devil's got nothing to offer us. God is the only source of living, eternal water and satisfaction. So sometimes when the storms of life come in and upend even the people that we love, instead of bailing them out and fixing their problems, let them have it and pray that God will use it to wake them up. That's my advice. Take it or leave it. Up to you. Verse 12. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. Now, I, I just I want you to notice that three days keeps popping up in the book of Acts. Do you think that's by accident? No. <laughs> we are on the schedule of the resurrection, right? We are the people of the resurrection. Jesus rose on the third day. So God operates regularly in Paul's life with these three-day increments. To kind of remind Paul, uh, you are here to bear witness to one thing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anyway, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Petulio. P no, Putioli. <laughs> Putioli. That's a good Italian name, is it not? I want to put the map up on the screen here because this is really cool. And this is going to point to a larger picture of what we're talking about in the book of Acts. This picture here, and I'm sorry for those of you who are listening, it's a picture of the Mediterranean world. Uh, we call this the Bible world, or not the Bible world, the New Testament world. And it stretches all the way from Israel and the Arabian Desert all the way to the west to the city of Rome. This is the New Testament world. The big body of water in the middle is the Mediterranean Ocean. Now, I want to just trace with a red line Paul's travels from Acts chapter 27 to 28. First, he starts in Caesarea, this port city at the northern northwest of Israel, and he travels uh, to an area called Myra, and then he takes another travel through the sea and arrives at the Isle of Crete. Now, Crete is important to Bible history because on the Isle of Crete, Paul, while there, must have established a gospel work because he writes a book in the New Testament called Titus. Titus is a letter written by Paul to a pastor named Titus who is pastor of the church that is on the Isle of Crete. That's very interesting to me. Anyway, he leaves Crete and he sails a little further and then he gets caught in the storm and he ends up on Malta. Malta is this very tiny little island south of what is now modern-day Sicily. And then 27, uh, Acts chapter 27 ends, and Acts chapter 28 begins, and he sails to Regium, which we just read, which is at the very tip of the Italian boot, for those of you who are not watching on the screen. Uh, Regium, this ancient city, and then he travels to Putioli, uh, uh, which is just a little southeast of Rome, and then eventually... He walks through the inland area of Italy and arrives at the city of Rome. Now, I just want you to see that Paul's journey stretches across the entire New Testament world. This is Paul the Apostle. And I want to put something else up on the screen. Now, watch this. This little green area is very tiny. It's in the bottom right of the screen. This little green shaded area. Do you know what that green shaded area represents? That green shaded area represents the geographical locale of Jesus Christ's entire earthly ministry. That tiny little ovalish kind of, you know, rectangular, if you will, square. 
It is, it is a fraction of the New Testament world. But Jesus ministered for three years, and that's as far as he got. Now, he did that intentionally because he was the last prophet to the kingdom of Israel. But nonetheless, let's shade now Paul's area of influence throughout the book of Acts with orange on the screen. And you can see it stretches all along the coast of the Mediterranean Ocean, all the way to the city of Corinth. It's on the Isle of Crete. It's on the Isle of Malta. We just talked about that. It's on uh, the uh, western side of Italy. I mean, it is massive. This is Paul's influence with the gospel in, in the New Testament world. And, and it just, you know, begs to prove what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 12. Remember what he said? He said, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. Jesus went to the Father to empower you, his church, to do greater things than he ever did. Isn't that awesome? And Paul exemplifies that for us in the book of Acts. He went farther than Jesus ever did. He ministered to way more people than Jesus ever did. He spread the gospel way farther than Jesus ever did. Of course, we would never have the apostle Paul without Jesus. We remember the book of Acts chapter 9, Road to Damascus experience. But nonetheless, it just proves what Jesus said is true. We are called to do greater things. We are called to reach more people than Jesus ever reached. And, and Paul raised the dead and healed the sick and did all kinds of things Jesus did. And, and, and we should be expecting to do that same thing. Why do we expect less in our generation? Why do we throw up our hands in doubt and fear and insecurity? Why? When Jesus promised that we would be empowered by his ascension to the Father to do greater things than he ever did. I want to be part of a church, part of the movement that does greater things. Don't you? I do. Anyway, verse 14, back to Paul in Rome. Verse 14, it says, There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. Finally, at last, Acts chapter 23, verse 11 is fulfilled here. Verse 15, And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius, that's a city about 43 miles away, and three taverns, that's a city about 33 miles away, they came that far to meet Paul and Luke and his associates. On seeing them, Paul, look at this, I love this. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. On seeing who? On seeing the brothers there. There were Christians waiting for Paul in Italy. How is that possible? Because if we remember way back in Acts chapter 2, there were already Jewish converts and Jewish believers who were there on the day of Pentecost for Passover, I'm sorry, for Pentecost, and they left and went back home with the gospel message. 3,000 people get saved. So there were some people from Rome that went all the way back to Rome with the gospel, and so they established churches as they went. That's the power of the Holy Spirit from the book of Acts chapter 2. It spread ahead of Paul getting there. He gets there. Oh, and by the way, we know there was a church there because he writes the book of Romans around Acts chapter 20. So we know there was already Christians there that he wrote to. But anyway, and when we came into the Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Okay, now, I want us to point out, I want us to look at something very important here. Paul is encouraged. He is encouraged in this foreign city, not by some, you know, personal relationship with Jesus, uh, not by his own personal prayer life or devotion. He's encouraged by his Christian brothers and sisters who met him there. 
Friends, we, we need to see this, okay? You and I are just humans, and we are not meant to do Christian faith alone. We are not meant to uh, pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, uh, figuratively speaking, in the spiritual realm, and take on the world and fight our spiritual battles all alone. No, 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 no. We need each other. We need to be there for each other. We need community. And Paul is given courage. Look at that. He took courage because of the brother. The brothers produced courage in the apostle Paul. Even the apostle Paul needed courage from his brothers in Christ. Maybe he was overwhelmed by the size of the city. Maybe he was overwhelmed by how many people needed Jesus there. Maybe he was overwhelmed by the fact that he's about to stand trial before Caesar. Who knows what the case was, but he was encouraged, not by his own personal devotion to Jesus, not by his private quiet time in, in prayer. He was encouraged by community. This is why during the COVID-19 pandemic, we had to reopen our churches. We have to. And I understand that there are going to be people listening on the radio or online who disagree with me, but I believe that church gathering is essential. It is essential. It is not optional. It is not dangerous. It is encouraging. And I know we can, we can agree to disagree here, about what's good for your neighbor and all that kind of stuff. But I don't care if it's 25% capacity. I'm willing to have church. I don't care if it's 30 people. I'm willing to have church. I will do whatever it takes to get God's people together. And we should be committed to the gathering of the body together. Some of you listening to the deep end, you consider this church. This is not church. This is me teaching you virtually. I have no idea who you are. We haven't met. We haven't talked. You don't know me. I don't know you. There's no accountability here. There's no support, encouragement about life and going through life. You need a church family, a church body. Keep paying attention to the deep end, but get yourself into a local church and show up. <laughs> show up. It's biblical. It's commanded in the scripture. I want you to look with me at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. It says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Let us, how do I get stirred up in the spirit from other people in community? Why? Because verse 25, he says, not neglecting to meet together, together. That's what the church is. Do you know what the word church actually means? Assembly, ecclesia in Greek, it means assembly. We are not actually the church until we assemble, <laughs> Okay as is the habit of some. In other words, the, the writer of Hebrews is writing that, you know what, some people get into the habit of just not showing up anymore. And some of you got comfy during COVID-19 lockdown with online church. And you're like, I don't need to go back ever. Yes, you do. <laughs> you need to assemble. You need to get back together with the body and encourage one another. And look at this. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. There are Christian ministers and Christian pastors out there who are embracing perpetual lockdown. They, they don't ever want to open up their church again. I don't know what's going on. I've heard of these big-time pastors. Some of them I value and respect greatly, but they're not opening their doors for the rest of the year. And I don't know what's going I don't know if they know what the, what the word church means. I don't know, what are they waiting for? People need to get together in the body of Christ. And I, I sometimes think that maybe they just don't like small crowds. They only want to preach to big crowds, which is very selfish. Maybe they just like being able to preach once a weekend. 
I remember my team would tell you about the lockdown. We did it once a weekend. It was easy, right? Guys were like, oh, one time a weekend. In and out. And then we would just replay the service online. It was really easy. Like, it was really easy. Yeah, it's harder to do multiple services. Yep, it's harder to do multiple services because we can't have as many people per service. But I'm willing to do that. Do you know why? Because of Hebrews chapter 10. I would gladly do that. It would be easier for us to go back to online only. It would be way easier. But I want you to get into fellowship with other people. And I heard one, one minister say, we won't open our doors until we can guarantee a completely safe environment. A completely safe environment? Ladies and gentlemen, a completely safe environment does not exist. Ever. Anywhere. Anywhere. <laughs> uh, there's no such thing as safe environments. I quote to you, I quote for you, Mike Rowe, one of my personal heroes, the Dirty Jobs host. He said, quote, what if it's not safety first? What if it's actually safety third? <laughs> I've always loved that quote. What if it's not safety? Oh, safety first, safety first. Well, actually, wait, what if it's safety third? Like, <laughs> there are more important things than safety. Really? There are? Yes. Well, how did we become so obsessed as a culture with safety? How do we get so obsessed? Paul did not play it safe. He embraced risk. He embraced danger for the gospel. For heaven's sakes, people in this world embrace danger for, for pointless things. Elon Musk is sending people to space. We've already been there. We realize there's nothing there. But he's still sending people to space. He wants to colonize Mars. <laughs> He's not playing it safe. There's no stinking oxygen on Mars. He still wants to go. Why? Because we're supposed to challenge ourselves. We're supposed to take risks. Maybe the world would be more interested in our message if our message made us stronger and bolder, not weaker, and simply more moralized versions of the world that loves to play it safe. When did the church become so obsessed with safety. I can't guarantee your safety if you show up at our church services, but I couldn't before COVID-19. I couldn't guarantee that somebody wouldn't pull into your lane on the highway on the way to church. I can't guarantee that you will take your trash to the end of the driveway and not get hit by a drunken motorist. I can't guarantee that you won't slip on black ice, fall down, and crack your skull open. I can't ever guarantee those things. We don't live for safety. We live and, and trust God with the results. I bring you to a pandemic that happened before us. It was the 1889 to 1890 flu pandemic. It was sweeping across the world. It killed 1 million people worldwide. I think we're up to 600,000 with coronavirus in 1889 to 1890, there was a pandemic, a flu pandemic that swept across the world, killed 1 million people. It was called the Asiatic flu or the Russian flu. Yes, the Russian flu. We named flus for places before. We still name them for places today. <laughs> it was the last great pandemic of the 19th century. One of the greatest preachers to ever live was ministering in the city of London during that pandemic. And he wouldn't live much longer after that pandemic. His name was Charles Hayden Spurgeon. 
And he wrote to his church while he was sick with that flu and millions of people, almost a million, people were dying of that flu. He writes, would it not be well for all the churches to hold special meetings for prayer concerning the deadly scourge of influenza? The suggestion has no doubt been made by others, but I venture to press it upon Christians of all denominations that they may in turn urge all their pastors to summon such meetings. What is he saying? I pray that you guys get together, not separate. Our nation is fast learning to forget God. In too many instances, ministers of religion have propagated doubt, and the result is a general hardening of the popular feeling and a greatly increased neglect of public worship. It is written, when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Remember I said, sometimes the famine is God's tool to bring people back to himself. He says, let us who believe in inspired scripture unite our prayers that it may be even so. With a court and a nation in deepest mourning is time to cry mightily unto the Lord. Then he writes later, it's not on the screen, but he says, I've been given, I've been able again to revise a sermon without assistance. It is upon the text, Psalm 105, 37, and if the Lord wills, it will be published next week. This is Charles Hayden Spurgeon, January 1892. Psalm 105, 37 says, then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. There was none among his tribes who stumbled. Christian, why are you obsessed with playing it safe? I want to put something up on the screen. It's kind of the theme of this whole topic, this whole message. Christian, you are not, you are saved. I'm sorry. Christian, you are saved. And that does not mean that you will always be safe. We got to get our F's and our V's right. (laughs) To be saved does not automatically equal safety in this world. I've read the Bible. God regularly asks his people to risk their lives in obedience to him. They risk their lives in obedience. It begins with two Hebrew midwives. They defied the government's orders. The government's order from Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1 was to kill all the male Hebrew children. And two midwives named Sifra and Pua, whose names did not take off in English vernacular, <laughs> decided to defy Pharaoh's orders. They, they defied the government orders. See, the threat... For Egypt was Hebrew men. The threat was Hebrew men. So they said, kill them. And these two women. By the way, they're some of the first women mentioned by name in Scripture who were not Hebrews. I mean, I'm sorry, who were not part of Abraham's direct descendants. And they, they, they defied Egypt in order to obey God. And God honored them with families himself, for themselves. In Joshua chapter 6, the people of Israel are commanded to march around the walls of Jericho. It's not safe to march around a city that you're about to invade. They could throw things on your heads. They obeyed. It was a risk. Daniel chapter 6, the rule of government was no more praying. What does Daniel do? He goes up to his room, he throws open the windows of his upper chamber, and he gets down on his knees and he prays to the God of heaven in in the sight of all people. It was risky. He defied the government and he was thrown into the lion's den. Another risk. And God protected his servant. In Matthew chapter 14, Peter says, Jesus, if that's you on the water, call me to come out to you. And Jesus says, come on out. That's risky to try to walk on water in the middle of a storm. And then in the book of Acts, have we not seen God's people repeatedly told to take risks in obedience to God. Peter is told not to preach. He goes out and preaches anyway. He's thrown in prison. The, the, the angel opens the prison doors. He goes back out and preaches again. 
Paul is beaten and dragged out of the city. He goes back into the city and preaches again. Time and time again, our Christian heritage finds heroes, male and female heroes, who said what the government is trying to tell us to do is not what we're going to do because we fear God over government. Christian, you are saved, but that does not mean you will always be safe. The Apostle Paul knew danger more than any of us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he recounts all the ways in which his life was in danger. He says, 2 Corinthians 11, 23, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings. Look at this. Countless beatings, he says. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I drifted at the sea. Frequent journeys, and then look at this, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, and often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all these other things, there is the daily pressure, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I mean, we, we, we spent time this season tracking his progress in the gospel ministry through the city of Ephesus. Remember, back in Acts chapter 18 and 19, he's in the city of Ephesus, he starts preaching the gospel, there's a huge riot, and there's a huge protest, and they start burning stuff down. What does Paul do? He wants to go out into the crowd and address them, and his friends have to say, no, no, don't do that, you'll get killed. He writes about that episode in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And what does he say? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. And he says this. He says, listen, if the, if the resurrection is not a true story, if the resurrection is not true, then this whole Christian thing is a joke. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then when he's defending the resurrection, here's what he says. 1 Corinthians 15, 31, he says, I die every day for the cause of Christ. I die every day. I, my life is at risk every single day day for the cause of Christ. And then he says this, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? <laughs> In other words, he's like, man, my heart is set on the hope of the resurrection, not in this present life. That's why I was willing to fight beasts at Ephesus. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Look at this phrase, bad company ruins good morals. Uh, we love to apply that verse bad company, corrupts or ruins good morals. We love to apply that verse to the idea of, hey, don't hang around non-believers because they'll corrupt your morals. But that's not the context that Paul uses that passage with, is it? He's talking about people who are in the church and deny hope in the resurrection. Those are bad people. Who do you want to avoid? You want to avoid Christians who deny or don't look forward to the life to come because they're so tied to this present world. That's who you want to avoid. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And I seriously wonder sometimes if our reluctance to face the dangers of this pandemic, to gather together as the church, to the extent that we, 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 we actually put people who desperately need community into more isolation and I wonder if it's not betraying in the church in America a total lack of hope in the life to come because we're too comfortable and in love with the life we now have. We should be ashamed, as Paul says, if that's our spirit. Because this is the fact. Paul's going to be in heaven one day. 
If you're in Christ, you're going to be in heaven one day too. And he suffered. And he faced dangers. And he was whipped and he was stoned and he was chased out of town and he fought wild beasts and faced riots and imprisonment. And you might, you might run into Paul in heaven. And it's going to be an awkward conversation when he tells you about his shipwrecks and his beatings and his whips and his whippings and all of his troubles. And you tell him, well, <laughs> I stopped going to church because of the flu. <laughs> That's going to be an awkward conversation. Pastor, don't you take this seriously? Of course I do. But this life is not our ultimate life. And if this life presses on us and demands of us faith in spite of the fears that are impressed on us by 24-hour news networks and endless Facebook fights over whether or not this disease is that serious, then maybe it's time for us to actually step up and stand up for something that we truly believe in, and that is the resurrection of Jesus that has nullified our hopes in this life and has solidified our hopes in the life to come. Amen? I mean, just to me, <laughs> I'm just trying to take it simply here and say, let's take a look at what Paul lived, how he lived, and let's not assume that being a Christian means playing it safe. It means we're saved, not safe. Going on, verse 17. Again, after three days. See that? <laughs> the... the the schedule of the resurrection repeatedly happens in, the Paul, in, in Paul the Apostle's life. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, now notice who he's talking to here, the Jews, the leaders, the local leaders of the Jews in Rome. These are not Christian brothers. These are Jewish brothers. These are his ethnic family. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or, or, or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. So he goes and he reaches out to his ethnic family. This is very important. He rem remember I said earlier that he got to Rome and then Christians came from 30 and 40 miles away. They walked. That's a full day's walk to get to that place to just meet their brother Paul in Rome. Now he reaches out to his ethnic, his biological brothers. And he says, guys, here I am. Here's my story. And just notice the difference of reactions between Paul's spiritual family, the brothers and sisters in Christ, and his ethnic family. Verse 19, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel the hope of Israel, Jewish brothers, that I'm wearing this chain. And then they said to him, verse 21, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. And then verse 22, but we desire to hear from you what your views are for, with regard to this sect, and by sect they mean the Christian sect, we know nothing, or I'm sorry, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Like the only thing that they know about Christianity is that everybody hates it. <laughs> It's kind of funny, isn't it? Like they're like, all we know about this Christian thing is people just don't like it. And, and it's kind of the same thing still to this day. Like the, the Christian message is a, is a message that a Jewish carpenter ministered for three years, was handed over to the Romans, put on a cross, and rose three days later for our sins. And yet this message is offensive. This message bothers a lot of people. <laughs> 
a lot of powerful people. In India, more pressure is being mounted against the Christian church. I know this because we have a missionary in India that we support, and he is feeling the heat now more than ever. In China, they are taking down crosses and churches and Christian images and replacing them with pictures of the dictator, removing their rights, removing their privileges as citizens because they're Christians, because they believe a Jewish guy died and rose again. That's what they believe. <laughs> and this is a huge threat to the Chinese government. In America, there are looming threats for Christian freedom as we see Supreme Court cases being narrowly won, narrowly won, for Christians seeking to live according to their beliefs instead of the tolerant, progressive, and highly secular culture. Like, right now, it's like judgments from the Supreme Court in favor of religious liberty are like down to five to four. In 10 years, is that, is that going to still happen? We, I don't think so. I read this past week of the protests in Portland, the riots, really, in Portland, Portland, Oregon. They burned crosses and Bibles as they marched for black lives. You burn crosses and Bibles because you care about black people? What? That doesn't make sense. Why do haters burn Bibles and crosses? Well, the scripture tells us why. Because their deeds are evil. <laughs> 1 John 3.12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil. His deeds were evil. John 3.19, and this is the judgment. Jesus says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Paul tells them about the message of Christ, and they're like, well, all we hear about is bad things. I wonder who needs to hear me right now. All you've ever heard about Christianity and Jesus is bad things, and yet it's the greatest, most important, most joyful message that has ever been delivered to the world. Verse 23, when they had pointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So this should actually hearken us back to another moment in Luke's writing. Luke chapter 24, where Jesus is walking on the road with two men on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, 26, and he talks to these guys, and it says uh, in verse 27 of Luke 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Paul does the exact same thing here because he's talking to Jews. He's like, listen, Jesus is the true Daniel who went into the pit of death and came up three days later. Jesus is the true Joseph who was cast into a pit by his brothers and was betrayed into the hands of sinners and then became the second highest in all the land and distributed grain and bread to the nations. Jesus is the true Moses who gives us the law from heaven and delivers us out of our sins. Jesus is the true prophet. He's the true priest. He's the true king of Israel. And he goes off on this message. And I'm sure it was brilliantly delivered by Paul the apostle because he says he preaches from morning till evening. You got to be a really effective communicator to be able to preach all day and keep people's attention. Anyway, verse 24, this is the response. And some were convinced, but others disbelieved. This is how it goes when the gospel is preached. Some are convinced and some disbelieve. I can be preaching the gospel in the church and two people can be sitting side by side and one person gives their life to Jesus and the other person walks out and says, eh, I didn't like that. <laughs> it's just the nature of the business. We don't lose heart. We trust God with the results. But verse 25, it says this, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed 
After Paul made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Now he's going to quote their scriptures back to them, and he's going to say, these, these scriptures are about you. And he's going to quote from Isaiah. He says, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes... Uh, I'm sorry, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah chapter 6. Remember the, the great call of Isaiah the prophet where he says, Here am I, Lord, send me. And uh, God says, Okay, I'll send you, and now you're gonna, I'm going to send you to people who will not listen, and I'm going to send you to people who will not see. Uh, now go. And you think, why does God do that to Isaiah? Well, why does he do it to Paul the apostle here? Because he's giving people every chance he can. Even when he knows they won't listen, he still reaches out to them. He still reaches out to them. But Paul is also coming to the realization of something that began way back in the book of Acts chapter 13. When when he and Barnabas set out and went to Cyprus and Pisidian Antioch, the first two cities where they preached the gospel, and they went to the synagogue and they preached and eventually the synagogue kicked them out and then the Jews made a fuss and then he turns to the Gentiles and the Gentiles start coming to Christ in droves. And it's kind of a reminder of something that is true still to this day. It's true still to this day. It was true in Paul's day and it's true still to this day that sometimes people who have been in the church the longest are the hardest to reach with the gospel of Jesus. Some people, sometimes it's the people, who feel the most secure in their own religious observance, who fail to see their need for a Savior. You can can miss God through rebellion and sin and wickedness. But did you know you can also miss God through religious practice, self-righteousness, and yes, dare I say, even the sacraments of the Christian church. Because you think that those things and what you've done make you right before God, and they don't. What makes you right before God is faith in what Jesus did, not what you did. That is the gospel. That's why the gospel is good news. It is not a list of two do's. It is news that God has saved you. Verse 28, the last slide in the book of Acts, and the season three, Acts 28, 28. Therefore, Paul says, let it be known that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. You know what I learned about God here? He moves on. If the people that should listen don't listen, he moves on to new people. Verse 30 says, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. And without hindrance. And without hindrance. And that's the end of the book of Acts. And um, incredibly, the last word in the Greek text of the book of Acts, guess what? The last word in the Greek text in the book of Acts is that word, without hindrance. It's two words in English, but it's one word in Greek, and it really is unhinderedly. You know what it's telling us? It's telling us this. The gospel is going to be proclaimed in our time, Acts chapter 29, that's us, okay? It's going to be proclaimed without hindrance. You know, during the spring and summer, plants produce pollen, millions and millions of pollen particles, and they fly up into the air, and they're carried in the wind to all the other areas of the land. 
to find a fertile resting place. And even in places like Antarctica, I don't know if you know this, but even in places like Antarctica where temperatures reach negative 100, they have found frozen pollen particles. That's as far as the pollen particles have reached through the wind. The fine grains of life continue to spread and be carried by wind and water currents that lift the pollen into the air and carry it across the oceans until it's found on the highest mountains and the most barren of deserts and at the bottom of the deepest oceans. In the same way, the gospel seed has been tossed into the wind, the wind of the Holy Spirit, and carried around the world right to where you are. Jesus said, the man that is born of the Spirit is like the wind. You cannot see where he is coming from or where he's going. He's led by the Holy Spirit. Led to do what? Led to bring the gospel to the world. So, over the course of Acts, we have learned that there will be countless and a myriad type of attacks upon the message of Jesus. The gospel will always be attacked. In Acts chapter 3 and 4, it was the Jerusalem religious establishment that attacked. In Acts chapter 5, it was false brothers like Ananias and Sapphira that attacked. In Acts chapter 6, it was church infighting that attacked the gospel. In Acts chapter 7, it was the death of God's boldest servant, Stephen, that was attacking the gospel. In Acts chapter 8, it was sorcerers and magic arts. In Acts chapter 9, it was fierce and diehard opponents like Saul of Tarsus. In Acts chapter 10 to 15, it was the human instinct toward racism and ethnocentrism as the gospel made its way to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 16, open hostility from pagans was attacking the gospel. In Acts chapter 17, hostility from the hyper-intellectuals in Athens. In Acts chapter 18 to 19, riots and violent protests. In Acts chapter 20 to 26, false accusations, unjust treatment of God's messengers, and political pandering from people in power trying to please others attacked the gospel. In Acts chapter 27, the storms of the sea and shipwrecks tried to attack the gospel. In Acts chapter 28, the greatest and most powerful city in the Roman world was attacking the gospel. And still, the gospel has been preached. 2,000 years later, still going strong, the emphasis and the point and the goal that God is trying to accomplish in teaching us through the book of Acts is this, no matter what, the gospel is unhindered. It is unstoppable. So with all that in mind, my question to you is this. Are you involved? <laughs> are you involved in this incredible movement? Let me ask you a series of other questions. Are you involved in a local church? Are you giving your time, talents, and treasure to the gospel witness? Are you serving others? Are you opening your life to others so that they might see you and know you and come to Christ? And are you inviting people to church so that they might hear Jesus proclaimed? Are you sharing the podcast that you've just listened to on social media. That would be a way that you can help us partner, partner with us to share the gospel. Because listen, we don't just study acts. We do it. And that concludes the Deep End Season 3 in the book of Acts. I'll see you in September, everybody. I want you to consider giving to the Deep End today. Please do this. Help us actually pay for our studio rehab, which is coming up this month, okay? Help us do that. Consider giving to the Deep End at thedeepend.tv slash partner or the cash tag, uh, dollar sign the Deep End TV through the cash app. Please consider giving. All your contributions are noted and appreciated. Thank you so much for watching us this year. Make sure that you like and subscribe on youtube.com slash the Deep End TV. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the rest, all the other social media networks. We are going to grow from here. I'm expecting great things in season four, Life of David, starting in September. I'll see you then. Thanks for tuning in on The Deep End. 
Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End with Tim Hatch.